0: Hey, this is Mackenzie. And before we get into the show, I just wanted to thank you for listening to Glitter and Doom. We're a new podcast, as you probably know, and we have an ask for you. If you like what you've been hearing, tell a friend. If you don't like what you've been hearing, tell a friend anyway, and then you guys can talk shit about us together. And a reminder to subscribe if you haven't already. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists and cultural creators who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. I felt intimately familiar with Brick TV before I ever started working here, and it's because of this show called The Show About The Show.
1: Um, I was interviewed on this uh, podcast, and I, I like Pod. and the guy, Adam Shartoff, who was interviewing me said, Oh, I know a guy at this place called Brick who might be interested. And so then he contacted the guy, his name was Aziz.
0: That's a clip from the very first episode of the show about the show, which Aziz, who's also my executive producer, ended up greenlighting. Each episode of the show about the show is about the making of the previous episode. It is very meta and a total mindfuck and really unlike anything else that is out there today. Kaveh Zahedi is the show's creator and star. He's a documentary filmmaker who's been making movies for about 30 years now, and before we booked him on the show, the only things I knew about him were through season one of the show about the show, which I was really into, and this New York Times Magazine profile that came out in October, coinciding with the launch of season two. The title of the piece is A Filmmaker Bared His Soul. It Ruined His Life. The subhead continues, Kaveh Zahedi's abject, self-defeating, ethically questionable, maddeningly original approach to documentary. Complicated guy. And the more I watched of his work, the more I too found it questionable and maddening. Like every woman who appears in the show about the show, Kaveh's like, I wonder if she wants to have sex with me, even when it's pretty clear that these women are only interested in him professionally or creatively or just as friends. But that's all part of Kaveh's thing. If he has a thought, he's going to say it. He's not going to pretend to be someone he's not, even if maybe that someone is a guy who views women in terms of what they can give him, a guy who's willing to push when their wants and his wants don't align. But how much of that is real, and how much of that is a filmmaker's creative license? Is Kaveh the character the same person as Kaveh the human? Is he being radically honest about his own desires and shortcomings, or excusing radically bad behavior? These were just some of the thoughts swirling through my head when I sat down with him recently to talk about groping, the Zodiac, and human suffering. Javier Zahedi, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, you're welcome. So for people who have not seen the show about the show, what is the show about the show?
1: Yes, it's a, it's a show about making a show. And every episode is about the making of the previous episode.
0: And it airs on Brick TV. Yeah. Where we are right now.
1: Right. Yeah. And so a lot of it's about Brick.
0: There's a lot of those meta narratives within the show. Yeah. Um, including in this season, where you depart a little bit from the mm-hmm. structure of each episode is about the making of the previous episode.
1: Yeah. Season two is really like a one long extended episode Yeah, broken into parts. And season three is supposed to be about the making of season two.
0: I don't know I don't know if this was expressed to you when we booked you on the show, but this show is actually about um artists who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. Mm. I would say all of the people we've had on the show, and we've only done a handful, would say that they are making political art. We had you on the show because we're both at Brick and because I think that your show is among the most original and fascinating things that's being made right now. Um but I wasn't sure that you would say.
1: I would totally say that.
0: You would say that you're making art that is political.
1: Very much so. I mean, I think the personal is political. I think that every interaction is a microcosm for the for the whole of humanity's interactions. I mean, when I started doing activism in college, I was struck by how mean the activists were. You know, they were arrogant and they were snotty and they were like, Marxist-Leninists, and it was just like, you guys don't even understand the the basic fundamental idea of communism, which is that we're all one. And so there was this real disconnect between what they were preaching and thought they were doing and what they were actually, actually doing, because they certainly weren't changing the world, they were just polluting the space that they were actually in. And I was doing the same thing, like I was also uh, an asshole in my personal relations constantly, and had some notion of, like, making the world a better place. So there was an idea of, like, let's just take responsibility for the space that we are actually creating and our own footprint emotionally and psychically.
0: Your style of filmmaking, it mashes up this sort of direct-to-camera monologue, reenactments. There's some actual documentary as well. There's animation at times, would you say that generally it falls under the the realm of personal documentary?
1: Yeah, totally.
0: And how did you land on this style of filmmaking?
1: Well, I've been doing it for a long time. I mean, uh, I uh, had this epiphany on on LSD when I was in film school that, like, you know, beauty is in front of you. Like, everything is beautiful, but it doesn't. We don't see it as beautiful. I mean, I don't see it as beautiful. Usually, I just sort of see it as whatever. Right ugly or or dull um and you know when you're on drugs everything is 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 beautiful and so it was like clear that it's not that the things aren't beautiful it's just that your perception can't see the beauty in things and it just seemed like the purpose of art really should be to you know to cleanse the the window and so i just thought i'll make a film about the most uh simple recent universal banal thing really that i can think of which was a I was like oh i just had a crush on somebody and she didn't she didn't reciprocate my feelings i'll just make a film about that just because it was recent it was you know i was obsessed by it but it was you know ordinary it's ordinary uh pain uh of of daily living um and uh i had everybody play themselves i reenacted it and um and it was really good like it turned out really well
0: and And that's a little stiff.
1: that's a little stiff yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i asked her i asked her to go to a movie and she's got all weird about it. I mean, she didn't like shout, but she was kind of curt with me. But I'm sure it's because of Patrick. I mean, I'm sure it's because, you know, he's been following her all day and she's sick and tired of it. So she let it out on me, but it really hurt my feelings. How do you know she doesn't like him? (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) She likes him. She doesn't like him. You think she likes him? Well, okay, so she was in a bad mood. Maybe she doesn't like him. (laughs) She doesn't like him. She did snap at me.
2: (laughs) I'm sure it's because Patrick was getting on her nerves. It makes a lot of sense.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so then I just kept going, and it just kind of morphed gradually from film to film into this style.
0: And do you find that by reenacting the mundane or things from your own life that you are able to see the beauty in it in a way that you aren't when you are living your normal life,
1: yeah, the beauty and the humor, and the and the maybe even the the, the meaning of things, um, the camera notices things that you don't notice, you know, and you're able to have this perspective outside yourself that's really kind of amazing.
0: Is Kaveh the character who you play in your shows and your films? Is that the same Kaveh as the Kaveh I'm talking to right now in real life?
1: Um mostly, the New York Times person said uh, something like more muted, more guarded, and bleaker. So I think... Did that
0: ring true? Yeah,
1: it does. I mean, I think I'm just a little more like uh, mellow and toned down, like now, than I am when I'm reenacting something.
0: Right. I feel like most people, when we're telling a story about ourselves, unconsciously or consciously, we edit the story to make ourselves look better, mm-hmm. but you don't seem to do that. Yeah. Is that a conscious choice that you make to not present yourself in the best light?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 boring and annoying when people do that. And I think, you know, the art of it requires, like, radical honesty. And also the drama of it requires, you know, that you... Emphasize certain things and not others. So, you're constantly sort of cherry picking what parts of the uh, thing you're going to reenact and what aspects of your personality or or, or your behavior are gonna are going to be interesting. It's usually the things that are ethically, you know, ambiguous or dubious.
0: Right. I mean, you present instances where you behave very badly.
1: Yeah, one and- could, one could say that. <laughs>
0: I'm just thinking about, like, I'm a sex addict, right? You are very Mm -hmm. forthright about the fact that you groped women without their consent.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what I'm trying to do is sort of, like, give a more accurate map of the human. Like, there's a map of the human that is, I think, not realistic and not true. And, like, um, I mean, for example, you just said this thing, like, there's a scene where I, I grope a woman without her consent. It's true, but it was actually, it was, it was a prostitute that I was about to, like, uh, that we're having a transaction.
0: Well, but you also talk about going into massage parlors. Yeah, that's that, what it was. But that the receptionists, you grabbed their breasts and then ran out the door.
1: Yeah, you're right. I did do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the receptionists were were also prostitutes. I mean, it wasn't like... It wasn't like a a secretarial job,
0: but they may not have been sex workers. I mean, the, you know, they, the point
1: is they would not consent to it, and, right? And the consent whether would be, or not they were sex would workers would be usually financial. You know, right. like I wasn't paying for the thing I was that they usually get paid for,
0: right? Whether or not they were sex workers, consent is <laughs> right, right,
1: right. No, I mean, no, I'm not proud of that, um, but the but but it's like it's within the realm of the human. I mean, we're all constantly sort of like trying to get something for free you know, and we're all constantly trying to like, um, we're all constantly being selfish in different ways and overriding other people's, you know, boundaries or desires. Like that's just something we all do. And so I think it's very important to be honest about it because one, it eliminates a certain kind of moralism that's based on a very non-human map. And also it's sort of creates more like complexity and also a kind of possibility of understanding and forgiveness into the equation. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems with, you know, sex addiction is the shame of it. So by having this kind of like shame on you moralism in the equation, that doesn't help solve the problem. You know, it's like, uh, it just perpetuates it. So it's really, I mean, politically, I think it's an attempt to sort of like, um, Change the nature of the discourse so that a cure can be can be had.
0: Mm-hmm. And you think that begins with honesty.
1: I do.
2: Hi, I'm really sorry. Hey, I've been waiting.
1: I know, I'm sorry. I had a little masturbatory episode. What? I had to stop for gas. Did um, you just say a
0: little
1: masturbatory episode? Yeah, um, I had to stop for gas, and there was this um, woman who was kind of bending over it with gas in her car, and. Um, she was really sexy, and I, um, I just got really turned on. Uh, it's the way she was bending over, um, and I, um, I stuck to my apartment so I could, um know, masturbate. Um, but it was really no big deal. I just thought I should tell you. I just.
0: Honestly, seems very important to you. It's a recurring theme in in all of your work.
1: Yeah, I would say that's like the the essential. Uh, philosophy of the films, but also like I do think that's what will change the world more than anything. And we all want to be liked or loved. And most of us lie to be loved. You know, we hide things and and we're all kind of tricking each other. Like we're like uh acting like we're better than we are. And all the love we do get or think we get is based on a lie that we're promoting or a mask or a face or an act. And the result is, like, it's never quite works. It's never satisfying. I mean, I think everyone is lovable, and I think if people were honest, people would love them more, not less.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, this idea of honesty or radical transparency seems to be the cornerstone on which a lot of your work is built. Yeah. uh, Where you're going to portray yourself as you are, even if it's unpleasant, even if it doesn't paint you in the best light. But also it's a plot point. Like in I Am a Sex Addict, you, you show many of your relationships with women, significant others, um, as you are dealing with a sex addiction. And you come to the women who are your primary partners and you say, you know, I am having thoughts about having sex with a prostitute, or I did have sex with a prostitute. And your girlfriends are upset. But then you say, but I'm being honest with you how what's the relationship between the honesty in those moments and the fact that you have hurt someone do you feel that by being honest with them it in some way mitigates the hurt
1: i mean there seems to be this ethical notion or notion of ethics that i don't doesn't make sense to me which has to do with hurt and it seems to be something like this if somebody hurts somebody that's bad and they're responsible for the person being hurt. And you shouldn't hurt people. And it's like, well, I don't think that's actually how it works. I think, you know, like, my hurt is my responsibility. It has to do with my own judgment about something. So, like, if I say, so if I'm going out with somebody mm-hmm. and I say to them, oh, I'm attracted to her. Like, that's true. And she may be hurt by that, but that's just because she's insecure. There's some some wound that precedes me that that is triggering. But the solution to the wound isn't to lie to her and say, I'm not attracted to her at all. I'm only attracted to you, which is not true. Mm -hmm. And if you get hurt because of that, it's only because you haven't grown sufficiently to the place where you're fine with who you are and with who I am. And because I've had to lie about it, it's created a wall between us. And then I end up having to have sex with someone else because I'm feeling so repressed in this relationship that I can't be myself.
0: But saying that we don't have responsibility for hurting other people seems like sort of a, a sweeping statement. I mean, I think intentionality matters for sure, right? Like if you have a girlfriend and she says, hey, it's really going to hurt me if you have sex with someone else. And then you do go and have sex with someone else, but you come back and you say, I'm just going to be honest with you about it. I had sex with someone else. Surely you bear some responsibility in hurting your girlfriend.
1: But this question of like my need to have sex with her was more important to me than my need for you not to be hurt. Right. And then you need to know that about me, Mm -hmm. that I'm somebody for whom this is more important than that. Mm -hmm. And then either you're like, "Okay, I can live with that or I can't. Or I want to get to the root of why you felt the need to have sex with her because I don't want that to keep happening because it feels bad to me. Mm-hmm. And can we, like, find a way to, like, make that not happen again? Mm-hmm. And that probably will require, like, a very deep, honest conversation rather than a judgmental or victimy one about, right. like, you hurt me and I'm a victim here.
0: It seems like you have a very strong moral code.
1: I, I kind of do, but it's not everyone's code. So Right.
0: How it, would you describe your own moral code?
1: Well, honesty is at the heart of it. And part of the reason for that is because I actually don't think that we can know what's right and wrong. All we can know is, like, what's true for us. Like, what I like about astrology is that, like, like when I get mad at somebody or think they're bad, it's because they did something that I wouldn't do. Like for example, I don't know, my wife isn't talking to me right now, right? We have kids. I would talk to her, I mean, I try to talk to her and I'm like, it's good for the kids for their parents to talk to each other. But my wife doesn't agree. She's like, I'm not talking to you. And I'm like, but how could you do that? That's so uncaring to the children. To me, that seems ethically wrong. Mm. To her, she has a totally different model of what it is. And I don't even understand what her model is, but, but because there isn't honest communication, I am I am using my own um, assumptions and my own needs and desires and imposing them on her. But if you look at it astrologically, then it's like, well, she's a Virgo and her moon is in, you know, Capricorn, and that's a totally different way of looking at the world. And for me to bring my Taurus sensibility to that situation, it's kind of inappropriate. Like it, it's like putting a round peg in a square hole it like...
0: What is a Torah sensibility?
1: I, I don't even know. I'm just using this as an example. <laughs> okay, you, know? you
0: like astrology, but you're not you're not deep into it. No, I'm
1: not deep into it at all. You
0: like the concept of I astrology. I like the concept that
1: everyone is different. Right. And that we shouldn't hold people to the same standards that we hold ourselves to because they're different. huh. Which is kind of the opposite of what most ethics are. I just think it's important to understand that, like, we're different. And not to project my things onto you. Or my ethical standards onto you. Because if I do, I'm gonna judge you because you're not gonna conform to the things that I've agreed to conform to, right? It's like you go to a movie theater and somebody's like checking their phone, right? To me, this is outrageously unethical. You know, like you But just, they're
0: just a Scorpio.
1: Right, exactly.
0: I don't know what that means, but I don't either.
1: But it's like they have a different system, you know? And forgiveness seems like it requires this understanding of of this of this absolute uniqueness of each person Mm
3: -hmm. ethically Regis I'd like to phone a friend
0: hi Corinne hi Mackenzie (laughs) um will you introduce yourself
3: oh gosh my name yeah I'm Corinne (laughs) I am a playwright I also teach in an English department at a college I have um, a master's technically in philosophy and religion. I pursued that master's within a department that was called philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness.
0: And as part of this degree, you also studied the cosmos sort of writ large? Uh,
3: yeah. Like not,
0: like not in an astronomy type way.
3: In an astrology type way. So it turns out that like everyone I was in school with was an astrologer. I feel like I don't wear my woo so much as other people. You know, I'm like a crystals in my pocket sort of person, not like a crystals around my neck sort of person. Right.
0: So you did not go to school for astrology, but you did take an astrology class and a lot of your peers were astrologers. Okay. So that is the baseline of your knowledge. That's right. (laughs) You read a book. (laughs) You took a class and you've had a lot of readings performed on you.
3: Yeah, and it's been a lot of years, so I don't even remember all that well.
0: Perfect. This sounds uh, like you are exactly (laughs) the person I want to talk to. Um, Can you read somebody's birth chart for me?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Is that irresponsible? And if it is, do you care? Oof. I I can certainly um, try to read someone's birth chart, just as long as all of your listeners understand um, that I am working with Faulty knowledge.
0: Great. Many grains of salt, listeners. Many, many grains of salt. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're going to look at his birth chart, and you're going to look at the planetary alignment and tell me what the positions of the planets might say about this person's personality. That's right. Great. Yes. Great. Okay. Um, all right. April ninth, 1960. This is publicly available information on wikipedia.org.
2: And
0: location, um, he was born in Washington, D.C. Okay, so with that information, I'm going to send you this brick chart. So it's a circle. I'll describe it for people who have not seen a natal chart before. So it's right. a circle that's divided into the 12 signs of the zodiac, and those are around the edges of the circle. And then it looks like um, a series of connected lines. Inside mm-hmm. the circle,
3: great. And so then, also in the um, in the inner circle, like just inside of the zodiac symbols,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you can see other little symbols, and those are the planets. I'm I'm entirely, almost entirely, going to be paying attention looking at this chart to how the planets are connected to one another. Less about what houses the planets are in, or what. Um, or what zodiac signs they're in got it perfect yeah lay it on me so the sun is like outward facing identity it's the face that you show to the world so the sun in this chart is an opposition to neptune and neptune is thought to be the planet of like um dreams or water or dissolving boundaries so this is a person who actually—I mean, I would say has either a very fluid sense of self, or um, or a sense of self that changes often. But also, actually, no. The better thing to say is this is like a a dreamer archetype. Like this person probably um, is into altered states of consciousness. <laughs> would be my guess or that uh, is true this person loves drugs yeah that sounds that sounds right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but does loves talking about drugs there is the i would i only ask that because uh sun neptune is like i guess pretty open (laughs) about pursuing altered states of consciousness whereas maybe a, a moon neptune It's like more a part of the internal experience and less of a shared thing.
0: So what is, speaking of the moon, what does this chart tell you based on that?
3: I am only paying attention as I look at this right now to um, the moon being square to Mars. Um, And so Mars would be like the planet of aggression, some might say. And the moon is interior life, emotional life, family So, like, ways that those two could interact with one another could be um, (laughs) a lot of family drama.
0: In season two of his show, he documents his uh, explosive divorce. I'm not going to lie, it feels invasive to look at somebody's birth chart without them around, but I know that people do this all the time.
3: Um, It does feel, it feels invasive to me, too. Actually, I have never looked at a chart before with the person not being there.
0: What do you think? think of the relationship between
3: astrology and personal responsibility? Okay. So I wouldn't say that the planets have any sort of causal effect on us. I don't think it's like Mercury is doing this to me. So if you think of the planets less as um, beings that are exerting some sort of um, predestined uh, uh, plan or you know enacting that in our lives and more like weather that's present sometimes doesn't actually have that much to do with uh, our lives and what it like happens it feels to me not so different though from like um uh psychoanalysis or whatever <laughs> it's like you can also unearth the things in your past that have caused you to behave the way that you've done but unless the like unearthing is about some sort of transformation unless the goal of the learning <laughs> is then being able to change based on it I I don't know quite how effective it is. But the point is, like, what you do with the information after.
0: There was a critique of a film that you made called The Sheik and I. And just broadly, this is a film where you um, were critical of a sheik when you were told not to be. And one of the criticisms was that you put people in danger by making this film, people who lived within the Sheikh's kingdom and could face repercussions. And the title of this review was Kaveh Zahedi Puts Lives in Danger and Faces a Fatwa for the Sheik and I, A Moral or Essential? Try Both. And that headline really bothered you.
1: It did bother me. I mean, we live in an immoral world, right? And there is no moral position within this world. I mean, we're all participating in a deeply... Immoral system. Brecht said famously, Every day I go to the marketplace of lies and I hope to take my place among the sellers and not the buyers. You know, like there is no outside to capitalism. Mm-hmm. So, in a totalitarian country where everyone is being oppressed, anything you say against the government endangers people. So what do you do? Do you not protest? And as an artist and as an activist, you know, how do you approach that? It's very there is no clean place. And to say like it's immoral to talk about government repression in a repressive country is really naive, I think, because it assumes that not talking about it is somehow safe for those people. It's not. Those people are undergoing all kinds of horrible stuff all the time. And no one is talking about it. It's just weirdly um, simplistic model that would say, oh, it's immoral to put lives in danger when lives are already in danger. Mm -hmm. And you're just trying to find like a a really playful way and an exploratory way to sort of speak about these things in a way that can sort of help move the conversation forward and help uh, shed light on the human rights abuses that are happening there.
0: I mean, I think one of the criticisms that, of that film, which I haven't seen, I should say, um, was that you were being critical and enlisting people who lived in the Sheikh's kingdom, um, but then you, that you would get to return to the United States and the safety of the United States.
1: Yeah, but it's only because I can leave the country that I'm able to speak about it. Like, that was what gave me the power to expose what was happening. Mm-hmm. And again, like, came back to the ethical thing, like, I don't think that I personally would interview somebody about a film that they made and bring up ethical issues about the film without having seen it. Right. Mm-hmm. But you, you did.
0: I did. Yes. Right.
1: So like we have a different ethics around that. Sure. So to me, it's just like, to me, that seems wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I wouldn't do that, but you know, I'm not you and you have like a zillion things to do. And like, I'm sure you don't have time to watch all the movies that you need to talk about. And then you have a question that's a legitimate question. So you want to say it, but like, me, just being honest, like, my first thought is like, what? You didn't even watch it? And you're, like, basically criticizing this film that you don't even know what it is. I'm not saying
0: that I'm criticizing it. I am saying that I'm repeating... Yeah, but
1: the question was a critical question.
0: The question was about criticism about the film.
1: Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean...
0: Which I think think is fair, and I do... It's
1: totally fair, and I think it was a good question. But I'm just saying, I'm having judgment Mm -hmm. about... Your question in the face of not having seen the film, because right. you would have a very different take on it if you had seen the film. And I'm trying not to judge you because that's my first impulse.
0: I'll just be clear. And no, that- no,
1: I don't want to. I'm, I'm. I'm. I just wanted to finish with one thing, mm-hmm. which is just that I'm just trying to say, like, it's. I think it's wrong for me to judge you. Like, I have to fight that impulse in myself because, and it's an impulse that comes up. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same impulse that we have whenever we judge anybody. We're like. But I wouldn't do that. And how can you? But then it's like, no, but wait a minute. There's a whole other context. So all of my films really are trying to get to that other context. So that that tendency of like, oh, you did this thing. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. There's this other context. And that's kind of what I think heals the world.
0: But I think it's entirely fair of you to say, hey, you're bringing up a criticism of a film that I made. And you didn't see it. So, I would prefer for you not to talk about um, a critic who had seen it uh, without your having seen it. That seems to me like that is a reasonable feeling, and it seems, you know, I know that... I guess I come back to this idea that um, feelings that we evoke in other people are... that the person who's having the feelings are wholly responsible for their own feelings. And I think look, I think that I think that's good work for us all to do, right? Because we are moving through a world where we're going to be assaulted by things that make us feel terrible. Yeah. And so if we can be self-resilient and figure out a way to deal with those, great. But I also think that that doesn't mean that that if we have caused someone to feel badly, that we are without responsibility.
1: I, I yes. I mean, if I saying, made you
0: feel bad about no, this film, I do want to say that, you know, you're right. I didn't watch it. And It was not my intention to come after you for it. I simply wanted to talk about something that a critic had said
1: about your film. And I I don't want to, like, guilt trip you about that. Like, I know it sounded like a guilt trip, but it was really an attempt to sort of look at the uh, the phenomenon of guilt tripping. Um, And just what you're saying, I mean, your argument is so reasonable and so obviously true, um, but I'm going to argue against it anyway. (laughs)
0: Okay, I'm ready.
1: <laughs> well, it's a very new age thing that I'm saying, you know. It's this idea of taking, like, radical responsibility for your experience. And it really doesn't even make sense at the level of this world. Like, in this world, clearly, you can't say that all suffering seems to be the responsibility of the people who are having it. You know, that's, right. just, that's just absurd. Correct. The only way it makes sense, if it does make sense in any way whatsoever, is in a metaphysical model in which before this lifetime people chose to have certain experiences to grow and then we're responsible then we're like you know why did i choose my parents why did i choose my my traumas that happened you know mm-hmm. and all those traumas were helpful to me in a spiritual evolution if i'm trying to get to a certain kind of spiritual place let's call it waking up from what i would call the dream of existence right but That's the only way it makes sense, Mm -hmm. is if there is a previous incarnation and there's a future incarnation. And this is just like a dream along the way that we have to go through to wake up.
0: Is that your spiritual belief? Is that told you? Yeah. My question about that, the thing that I find problematic, given that we do live in the world that we live in, is that it hues very closely to the idea that... um, people who are rich and privileged are being rewarded by God in some way, right? And so that if we see people who are suffering, it is somehow their own fault because they didn't do enough spiritual growth on a previous plane. I mean, it's
1: like Hinduism and the caste system. Mm. You know, like the untouchables deserve to be poor and and the Brahmins deserve to be rich. So
0: how do we reconcile those two things?
1: Well, because I don't think it has... I don't think rich has anything to do with it or poor has anything to do with it. I don't think... I mean, the world seems either absolutely unjust and pretty much hopeless and things happen for no reason at all and good luck or it has meaning and if it has meaning i think it has to all have meaning like most people pick and choose their meaning they're like this is random this is meaningful you know like i think that's absurd like either the universe is meaningful or it's not hmm And I think it is. And if it is, then everything has a reason and injustice becomes something else. I mean, there is, I think, the need in our growth to be compassionate and to love and to help. Like that seems like a part of what waking up is, you know, but that doesn't mean that we don't take responsibility for our suffering, you know. Like, for example, my wife and I got divorced. It's on the show, right? Right. And there was a certain amount of suffering that came from that, you know, for me, for her, for the children, for people in our circle. And I'm sure she, uh, I'm, I think she feels victimized. And I have the same tendency. Like, I, I also tend to feel, my instinct is to feel victimized by the things that she's done to me. But if I look at it from a higher place, it's like all these things she did to me have forced me to grow. Like she's been like this incredible teacher to me. Now granted, there was no physical violence involved, there was no starvation, there was no torture. It wasn't like a severe example of of cruelty or of of uh, true suffering, you know? Right. It's just like a, the small sufferings of emotional daily life.
0: Or I think somebody, you know, living under conditions of famine that a dictator has uh, has imposed on a country I think it would be hard for that person to be like, but this is a great learning experience.
1: I know. It's a, it's totally hard and it seems heartless. It seems heartless to say, well, they just chose that experience in a past life for a learning experience, but I don't know how else to think about it except absolute utter despair. And maybe that's the right way, but it's not the way I'm doing it right now.
0: So you mentioned that you and your wife are are separated, or uh-huh. in the process of going through a divorce, uh-huh. and that is um, the plot of season two. Right. Um, in the show, she asks you, and this is a line that she's disputed. She says that she's never that she didn't actually say this, and you contend that she said something along the lines of it, where she asks you to choose between the show and your family,
1: uh-huh.
0: and you chose you choose the show. Uh-huh. Um, well,
1: it's actually not totally correct.
0: Oh, sorry, please.
1: Well, my memory of what happened is that she basically said, you have to choose between the show and your family. And I was like torn. And I'm like, the show is really important to me. It's not just the show. It's like my entire identity. It's my my art practice. And to say, you have to like, stop believing in radical honesty, stop believing in everything you've ever believed so that my feelings aren't hurt was a big ask for me. And in the show... I think about it. I talk to my sister about it. My sister says, What are you doing, you idiot? Like, how could you even consider weighing these two things? And I say, You're right, you're right, because my sister somehow like gets past all the other voices in my head. And I say to her, Okay, fine, I will not put any of the stuff you don't want to put in the show anymore. And then she goes off and she basically has a falls in love with this other guy because it's too late and says that she wants to break up. So it's not because I said I wouldn't pick the family. I actually did pick the family. Mm -hmm. It's because it was too late, and she no longer was interested.
0: But that monologue where you talk about, before you talk to your sister, where you decide that you can't not do the show. Right. The show about the show seems so intrinsically wrapped up in your ethic and your worldview and your art-making practice. Um, Was... Was there a version in which you stopped making the show but continued to practice the same type of radical honesty, continue making art about other things but that you just didn't include your family?
1: I mean, it would feel like a it would feel like selling out to be like, "Okay, I'm just going to do what the entire bourgeoisie has always done and all of the middle class America believes and avoid this thing that I've been believing instead." It would have felt like, you know, an artistic practice that turns back right when it gets really serious um, or dangerous. Um, at the same time, it's just—it's just on some level, it's just ego. It's just like identity and ego. Like in the end, I didn't have to make that decision because she made it for me by leaving the relationship. But it was a, a decision I was—I was willing to make at a certain point.
0: Um, it's interesting because I feel like the idea of boundaries is not something that comes up a lot in your work, but it's a word that you're using a lot to talk about your real life interaction with Mandy right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, the New York Times article says something about, uh, I think I said something about how I have no boundaries or something, hmm. um, which I think is kind of true. I think I'm against boundaries. I mean, I think I'm all for union between all people and some kind of spiritual oneness that that destroys boundaries. I mean, one of the things about like speaking truth to power, like power doesn't like it. You know, it hurts power's feelings when you speak truth to power, you know, but no one's like, oh, you hurt power's feelings, you know? I mean, Trump's feelings get hurt all the time. Right. So we're not going to be like, I mean, to apply this ethical model that you earlier were seem to be espousing of people's feelings are hurt, You know, you wouldn't apply that to him because you see him clearly, one sees him clearly as the oppressor in the situation. So it's like the oppressor's feelings don't matter.
0: Well, it's the idea of punching up versus punching down.
1: But again, even the notion of up and down, like what is up and what is down, like we think we know what up and down is. Right.
0: I mean, I guess talking about power structures, as you were saying. Yeah, but
1: even power structures, like this is one of the things that annoy me about the current reductive jargon around power structures is there's so many forms of power and they're all coexistent. And to say, this person has more power because of this one aspect is really simplifying the field quite a bit.
0: When people say white people have more power than black people, I don't think they're talking about like every single white person has more power than every single black person, right? But we're talking about systems, historical systems of inequality.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true. White people historically have had more power than black people, for sure. Uh, it gets tricky when it becomes this kind of blanket thing where it's all really complex. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm just i just against, you know, reductions. At the same time, you know, any telling of any story is a reduction, you know. I mean, the way you told the story about the groping left out key elements that inflect it. You know, they don't un- undo it, but they certainly change how one would read that story. And I do the same thing in my show. You know, right. like I'll leave out things that will change how you read it and it's inevitable in storytelling and I think that what storytelling can do and should do is to extend our humanity not to reduce it you know I read this book recently I, I didn't like it and then I read it again like a year later I love it you know the book hasn't changed I've changed and what I needed it wasn't giving me and what I'm needing now it is giving me what was the book it's called A Course of Love it's amazing who's it by it's a channeled book. So it's, uh, the channeler's name is Mary Perrin, um, or Marie Perrin. Um, but it claims to be channeled from a spiritual entity.
0: A Course in Love is a book that was written in 2001 by Mary Perrin. Well, not exactly written, more like received? As Kaveh mentioned, A Course in Love is a channeled book, and Perrin says that Jesus dictated it to her over the course of almost three years. It's an unauthorized sequel of sorts to A Course in Miracles, Jesus' 1976 banger dictated to Helen Schuckman. Schuckman and Perrin are part of a long tradition of writers, from the occultist Alastair Crowley to Moses, who say they are merely scribes for otherworldly beings. In 1970, a retired British bank officer and his daughter claimed to have taken dictation from the spirit of Ian Fleming six years after his death, producing an unpublished James Bond novel. But perhaps one of the most famous channeled texts is The Seth Material, written by Jane Roberts.
2: Uh, So Jane Roberts uh, was a woman from, from upstate New York who, in the 1960s, comes to believe that a, a spirit is speaking through her, who ultimately identifies himself as an entity named Seth.
0: This is Sam Kastenbaum, a religion reporter for The New York Times. I spoke with him about an article he wrote, Tell Seth Do Us Part. Let me ask you, um, who is Seth? <laughs>
2: um, who is Seth? Um...
3: This is Seth. There is a spiritual uh, biology within your being, and it speaks through each of your moments and uh, through uh, your sexual experiences. It speaks when you drink a glass of water.
0: Or more specifically, that is Jane Roberts channeling Seth.
2: Her early students would swear they could see her face almost transform when... She would allow this uh, entity to come through her, and her voice will drop. She'll kind of enter into this sing-song, hard-to-place accent.
0: To me, it kind of sounds like Yul Brenner mashed up with Brad Pitt from Meet Joe Black.
2: Everything gonna be irie. Seth is this uh, very colorful, uh, humorous character, If you if you read these books, who goes on about all sorts of things lost continents astral projection past lives jane describes that she says that she was receiving messages like a like a radio receiver
0: while roberts was channeling seth her husband would transcribe what she was saying they published these sessions which took place over a 21 year period in a series of books
2: you know a lot of seth readers like to say that jane kind of sparked this kind of flourishing of, of channeled material that comes uh, out in the next decades.
0: Texts like A Course in Miracles and Mary Perrin's A Course in Love. And look, if you're not a believer, I know a lot of this sounds like kookiness at best and chicanery at worst. But is it really much different from any other major world religion? Or is it just newer? And instead of prophets with names like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Muhammad, you have Mary and Helen. And Jane. I think many people find themselves to be frustrated with the amount of mediation that now happens between the life that we're living and the life that we present on Instagram and on social media. It's exhausting to be somewhere beautiful and be thinking about how you're going to capture the perfect Instagram photo, Um, but you've been doing that since way before social media. Do you find it to be exhausting?
1: I I, I came to Instagram very late. I only started doing it this summer. And, uh, you know, it's fun it's kind of great, actually. Um, but it's also like a, a chore. You know, Wallace Stevens has a line in one of his poetry, poems where he says, how many lesser poems he denied himself in his observant progress. You know, I imagine him like walking around thinking of poems and he's like, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. I'm not going to use that one. What is good enough? And the more of them you do, the, the higher standards get also. I've had this experience with video diaries too. Like when you first do them, like, hey... Shot of a cup, that's cool. But then after a while it's like that's not that's not enough. You can't just do a shot of a cup again. And this is true with relationships too. I mean, I think we always need to find something new to stay alive and to stay that's why I think our relationships often die out, is because people aren't finding the newness in the other and the situation. They're they're falling into habits. Um and so it gets boring. But there is the story of the now that's always happening, it's always new, but we're not seeing it. It's it's a lot of work to be fully in the present and and fully in the new. I mean, that's the work of art.
0: I mean, it sounds like you're using the language of addiction in a way where you, you're chasing the newness, you're chasing a, a bigger fix that, you know, you've, you know, you, you take a photo of a cup and at uh-huh. one point that satisfies you. Right. But like then all of a sudden that's boring <laughs> and you need to find something more interesting with more emotional depth that, uh-huh. you know, you need more and more uh-huh. in order to keep yourself stimulated and interested. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you just did a season about... Uh, a catastrophic moment in in your marriage, in your uh-huh. relationship. Do you worry about, like, what you will need to do next in order to satisfy that novelty?
1: Right. Uh, to keep upping, upping the ante. Upping
0: the ante, exactly. Y-
1: um, I don't worry about it. Um, maybe I should. I mean, right now, right? I don't know you very well. Uh, but, like, we're having a moment. And we're both, I think, using our past ideas, our prejudices, our preconceptions to navigate this moment. Mm -hmm. But we're also having a certain openness to what's new about this moment that our past assumptions, prejudices cannot quite encompass. And so there's this almost like this, I don't know about you, but for me, there's like a kind of going back and forth between a comfort zone and something that I've never experienced before. And so there is a tendency, I think, in all of us to sort of stay in our comfort zones and try to just stick with what we thought the world was before we walked into the room. But the world is new now. And the extent to which we can open up to that difference is, I think, the extent to which we can be in the new and in the present and in connection. And so it's hard. I mean, and it takes two to tango, but we're kind of both, I think having that, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but I think maybe we're both having that experience of like, ooh, how do I navigate this, these strange waters? The truth is life is an event. Life is a thing we don't know what it is. And we're like constantly trying to like know what it is so we can be comfortable in it. But it's constantly throwing us for a loop. So how do we move through the event of not knowing? And I don't know, definitely uh, awkwardly and uh, without grace is how most of us do that. And and part of my films, I think, are about it's okay to be awkward and without grace because that's actually the true condition of being alive.
0: Kave Zahidi, thank you so much. I mispronounced your name. That's, Kaveh Zahidi. That's
1: okay. That's okay. <laughs> There's no moral problem with that.
0: <laughs> there is no moral problem, but I would like to pronounce it the way that, you know, your parents would pronounce it.
1: You know, the real pronunciation is Zahedi. Zahidi. Zahidi. But no one, no one would say that, and and even we don't say that because we live in America, and it's like, why would you make Americans say it like that?
0: All right, fair enough then. Um, Kaveh Zahedi. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. And that is our show for today. Next week, we're going to be talking to artist Dred Scott about his slave revolt reenactment. So remember to subscribe so you don't miss that. And please consider rating or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Glitter in Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Bagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hoggesegg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.